Welcome to the Horizon Podcast, where we dive deep into the minds of extraordinary professionals, uncovering the stories, inspiration, and wisdom that have shaped their careers. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, and I'm thrilled to embark on this journey with you. Today's guest is Keith Boodle, Operations Manager for Progressive Automations. He will talk about applying the concept of muscle confusion from physical training to business to make outsized gains on professional growth. I'll now let Keith share a bit about his background in his own words. My name is Keith Boodle. I'm a uh, currently I'm an operations manager at a small company called Progressive Automations. We make uh, linear actuators. What the heck's a linear actuator? Not very many people know, but it's the mechanism that helps your standing desk go up and down. You know, you'd see it in all sorts of different applications in in cars. You know, if you got an electric car seat that goes when it goes back and forth, that's an actuator. Yeah, so that's that's what I currently do. I've held a bunch of different roles and sort of migrated through big businesses to small businesses to um, startup businesses, trying to be disruptors. And uh, and I really sort of like like working with the small businesses, like working with people that are motivated and, and you know, you've got a lot of opportunity to make changes and make stuff happen. What made you focus on small businesses as opposed to chasing the brand allure of a larger organization? Uh, for me, it, it came down to uh, not so much worrying about the stigma or the prestige that goes along with these type of uh, roles and companies, but more about what I've what I like doing. And for me, I, I really like being an interactive person. I like talking to people. I like being able to to go and, and sort of be wrong, fail fast. I mean, I know it's said a lot, but that was something that I really embraced with it. And uh, and it's really good. I find it really cool working with people who, who put it all on the line where they got, you know, it's more than just a job. They're, they're invested sometimes financially, but a lot of times more emotionally than, than anything. And and that's a really welcoming and happy place to go when you got to go to work. Looking back on your MBA, you had said to me previously that you got into business school because you wanted to to kind of brush up on on business chops. What, what was uh, like maybe the top three things that you learned from business school? If you knew me growing up, I, you would never have thought it, but I, I came out of my undergrad and I turned into a scientist. Uh, I was a hydrologist, so freshwater science. I loved it. I was on my feet. I was moving around. I was going, taking helicopter places and figuring out how much water was flowing through a stream. That was really fun. And then at a certain point, I, I sort of thought, well, wait, maybe I can do a little bit more than this. So that's what led me to do my MBA. And the really the big things about that that I got were the people side of it, that really it all comes down to how you're able to work with people and work with people from different places and apply different ideas and um, and really listen. I found myself sort of in this place where science is really black and black and white. There's a right answer, there's a wrong answer. And in reality, that's that's sometimes blind to a lot of things. So I felt like that was that was kind of what got me into it. What I really liked about it was the strategic side of things. And it's starting to, you know, when you start talking strategy or you start talking about planning stuff, there isn't a right answer. Every model is wrong as soon as you finish it. So that that kind of thing and, and being able to really try to turn ideas into reality. That's what I really think the MBA helped me those sort of skills, craft those skills and uh, be able to put them into practice. I really like uh, what you said there. Every model is wrong as soon as you finish it. Uh, I noticed that it's difficult to give anybody advice because you're no longer speaking from the point that you're pulling from. They're they're already in a different uh, circumstance than than you were when you're you're trying to to think back to what you would do, etc. I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit. 
Yeah, I think it really comes back to sort of having that goal as to what are you trying to accomplish with the model? What are you trying, where are you trying to go with what you're doing? I, from a more operational side, I'm not looking so far ahead in the future. I'm more looking at what can we do in the, in the near term and how can we make things better in the next six months or 12 months? So that, that sort of thing is, is really kind of unique and, and being able to pivot. And that's the part that I really like with the small businesses is, being able to take something and go down a path and, and test it, try it. If it doesn't work, go another way. If it does work, double down. What else can you do? What else can we, how else can we tweak this and see if it, if it really does hold water? So that was kind of the, the, the cool part about it that I liked was the, uh, the ability to be nimble and to, to move around a bit. So you like agility and uh, being able to, to adapt to uh, your circumstances, to the environment. There's a quote that you you sent me that uh, stands out as you're talking about flying in helicopters over streams. It's a little morbid, but I like it. It is good to save babies that are floating down a river, but more important to figure out where the babies are coming from. Could you explain that to me? So I I had a uh, a great I, I took a job because I loved the the person I was reporting to and uh, I would still recommend that to anyone it was it was a job that I wasn't really sure if I was going to like but the person I was reporting to I really really liked her and I got a really good vibe from her so that that was one of her sayings and uh, you know trying to find out yeah it's good to stop the stop the bleeding but uh you know she told this story and it sort of built out a little bit more but yeah there's a villagers there's these villagers and there's a baby's floating down the river and oh my gosh how are we going to get save them and then they just keep coming they just keep coming so it's it's one thing to to look at that from a uh you know solving the immediate problem but you also got to figure out where that problem's coming from and so that's something that I kind of grew into with my career that, you know, coming from a science and an analytical background where solving a problem is black and white, uh, that would be just pulling the baby out of the out of the river. Uh, but really what the the most impactful thing you can do is figure out where they're coming from and why they're getting there. And so that was that it's it's a it is a catchy quote. I do find myself saying it. It's not necessarily always well received, but I do like it, and I think it it's a good one. You'd mentioned that uh, you had some international exposure that you're thankful for. I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about that in your journey. Yeah, this was. I still tell the story, but it was my first job out of my MBA, and it was at uh, a company that was doing natural gas engine technology. And it was a publicly traded company that maybe you know they maybe timed that right, maybe didn't. But there's sort of that the pressure around it. And there was a an initiative that came out that was to help provide electricity to disconnected communities throughout the world. And it came out of the Clinton Foundation, and sort of thinking, okay, well. What do we do? And so we thought, well, where is the most disconnected and highly populous area? Well, it's northern India. So there's four to 500 million people in these two provinces, and only a small percentage of them were connected to a grid. Looking at how they would get their power, they were using diesel generators and, and this sort of thing. So we thought, okay, great. We're going to come up with where we were a natural gas company, but Providing ourselves as um, gas handling expert, any kind of gas, we could we could handle it. We could make energy out of it, and we could put it to good use. So I went to India, and that was my project to say, okay, find a way to sell this or find a market for this product. And it was a woody woody biomass gasification system. So the idea was is that on two acres of land, you could grow your own woody products, gasify them, turn them into electricity, and provide enough electricity for the village. Great idea. Excellent idea on paper. We were selling the, at that time, we were looking to sell one machine for $30,000 US. And I went to these communities where 
these people are nowhere near that ability to pay. And so having that, that was a huge eye-opening experience for me to be able to say, yikes, uh, this really isn't going to work. Our our Western metrics of you know what an ROI is and and what we need to see to from a publicly traded standpoint, this really isn't going to work. Maybe it's a break-even philanthropic project, but it's probably not going to make us rich. So uh, I had a real, real challenge with coming back and, and giving that message back to my team to say, uh, thanks for the trip to India. I had a great time. It's a wonderful country. But this idea that you hired me to to turn into a project is just not going to work. And so that was that was that was my first like, geez, maybe I maybe I'm doing the wrong thing here. Maybe um, maybe they're not going to like me. They don't want me around anymore. But that was really, really beneficial for me to see see a broader perspective, touch on my hydrology stuff. I did a lot of work with in the northern parts of uh, BC and Alberta primarily. And uh, and you see a lot of Indigenous exposure there, working with a lot of different people in that, in that area. So that that has also been really good for me. I, I really enjoy it. I think it's, it's so good to be able to get out of your little cocoon and your silo and see how other how other people work and how other people function. And it's really helped me as I've sort of grown with my career and sort of grown into leadership roles that you really got to understand people. Like I sort of started with, it really comes down to the relationship and and being able to work with people and have people um, become your advocate and likewise becoming advocates for other people. So I, I really, I, I'm very grateful for the international experience that I've had, um, you know, across North America and uh, some in Europe and India has been, uh, has been great. I, uh, I largely agree. Having traveled a little bit myself, uh, I like to mix it up. Um, yeah. It really helps you appreciate what you might've taken for granted and also uh, seek out things you might not have otherwise known about. Um, so it's it's good to kind of have that balance. And I think with your sense of agility, it maps well to having a global mindset. I was wondering which came first. Was that something that came from you traveling here and there? Or uh, were you just born that way? And uh, that's what kind of led you to, to explore the world? That's a really good question. I don't know. But I think one thing that I would kind of, I'm, I'm very grateful for is that growing up, my father was in the aviation business. So we traveled quite a bit. We got the opportunity to to do a lot of travel and see see some pretty cool things. So and he was gone all the time. Like he would he would be doing international stuff on all I guess not all six continents, but at least five of them. And so he'd always come back with these stories and trinkets and things like that 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 sort of helped me I think open my eyes to what else is out there. And yeah, I'm grateful that I've been able to experience it both through work and personally. I I like to get out there and, and see new things. You play sports a lot. Are you really into sports? Uh, maybe too what much. Are, maybe too much. What What are uh, your three favorite sports? Three favorite sports. So I would probably say at this point, it's uh, hockey, basketball, and squash. And that's to play? Yeah. What about to watch? Hockey's still my favorite to watch. College basketball is right up there too. And uh, it's incredibly hard to find a squash squash match to watch. Uh, they really? don't get televised very much. Uh, okay. Why do you think that is? They, it's it's just not a very big sport, and uh, especially in Western Canada, Eastern parts of North America, it's a little bit bigger, and they played in colleges and that sort of thing. And then it's also a different game in Europe, so it's 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 kind of different how they play it. It's not too dissimilar from tennis. It's faster paced. What would it take putting on your your NBA business hat? What would it take to make squash as big as tennis? Ooh, I think uh, being able to play it outside is a big thing. 
Um, you know, there's no public squash courts that somebody could go to at a you know, park, um, but there are a lot of tennis courts. Um, so I think that would be one thing. And then um, I've also thought about, I don't know if you remember if when you went to elementary school, they, there's those jungle gyms that would kind of fold up against the wall and then you'd fold them out and there was, you know, ropes and ladders to climb and all that sort of thing. What if we could fold that out into squash walls? And so at one point, at one end of the, the gym, you could just play squash there. But I, you know, maybe, maybe an idea for another time. Make it happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. You mentioned that you had a few lessons that you've taken from sports and maybe applied to sports. And there's some crossover with your sporting life and your business life. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. As I, like I sort of said, as I've sort of developed into more of a leadership role, I think people get sick of hearing me talk about my sports analogies and that sort of thing, but I'm not going to stop. One of the, one of the ones I like is that I don't think you want to be the best player on a team. You're not going to get better. And so, you know, I've, I've had the, the opportunity of being that the worst player on a team and go through that and and see, you know, how do you, how do you fit in? How do you work that, that those angles? And, and you see that you get so much more growth and development out of it, but there's a different phase for all of that. So, you know, you got to get back as well. You got to be comfortable being that, being that best player and helping other people along. So I think those are, those are pretty important. And then, you know, one of the things that, you know, I kind of mentioned when I was saying that, uh, black and white versus all these shades of gray, you know, hard work is hard work beats talent when talent isn't working very hard. And that's, that holds true in a, in a lot of different ways. But I think that overall, that, that ability and that desire to want to work hard, that's going to get you places. And that's, that's really going to serve you well. And, and hard work, you know, I, I kind of realized that when I moved more into coaching and, and that was a huge challenge for me is to, because I couldn't, I couldn't just say, Hey, do what I do. Um, I had to convince, you know, and get the, earn the buy-in and earn the respect of the players and, and find ways that, you know, we could really try to push towards a common goal. I, I invested a lot of my, my time and I still do in sports. I think it's, it's a great balancing uh, mechanism for me, but I, I honestly believe that it, it served me very well winning and losing. It's, you know, every time you play, there's a winner and there's a loser and there's a loser. So you gotta, you gotta know that that's okay. It's okay to lose. And it's just what do you do after Winning feels great, but losing makes you better. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, there's a little, perhaps, there's a little overlap. In my experience leading tours, I was kind of like a sports uh, team as I looked at it. Uh, you've got different personalities. You have to bring them uh, very quickly towards a common goal, manage people uh, collectively and individually, kind of blending between the two. One strategy that I found, and I'm bouncing this, I'm putting this out here to get your uh, take from your experience, is to find things that I genuinely admire or like about the other person, their, their background, their profession, some accomplishments, and show some interest and connect what we're doing somehow to that. So by that, I mean, if they, you know, if they were a hydrologist, if, if that's uh, the proper term for your previous life, uh, I might if you pass them by uh, a dam or something like that, or talking about uh, hydroelectric or just some way that I could connect to that, even though by itself, it seems kind of bland or, or uh, out of place. If it's, there's a sincerity there and like perhaps a question, it's weird how it like almost always worked where people felt their connection and that paid dividends. I could then talk about almost whatever I wanted to. And there was trust there. They believed me, they had a positive bias towards my recommendations 
And it just made everything on the tour go that much more smoothly, I found. Sounds a little manipulative, but it's like, I had to do it. I had I had 14 people in 14 days and I had I had to get them very quickly to, to get along. And uh, I also learned a lot along the way. But I was curious with your coaching experience and your experience working with teams, do you see something similar or do you do something different? I see a lot of similarities. So I think that uh, what you described there is, is more in alignment with a captain of a team. So captains aren't always the best players, but they're the ones that people follow. So when you're talking about going on a tour and, and taking people around, you're the person they're following. You're the person that they, they, they're gravitating towards because you have the information that they don't have. But as you, as you pointed out, there's a lot of different other skill sets out there. And, you know, if we were going by a dam, yeah, sure. You could tell me what dam that was and when it was built. And I could tell you about, you know, how much water that actually is if, you know, if it was swimming pools or something like that. But those are all sort of different skills. So a, a good captain is somebody who, who still understands all the other skills that people bring to the table and uh, appreciates them, admires them, praises them, uh, brings people up and, and keeps reminding them that what they're doing is, is valuable. You don't need to be the goal scorer or the person getting the MVP trophies to contribute in a meaningful way to a team. There's a lot of different roles and, and a good captain is somebody that identifies and appreciates those roles and really uh, brings out the best in people. I, I never... I was never blessed with the ability to score a lot of goals playing hockey, but, you know, I really, I liked other parts of the game that were really fun. You know, make a good first pass. Don't, don't pass your problem on to somebody else. Those sort of things are, are really what helps start the, start the engine and get the whole thing going. So yeah, for sure. I think well aligned. Could you share an example from your coaching experience where you had to make a difficult decision that didn't feel good at the time, but turned out to be the right decision? Yeah. There was, um, it was dealing with a concussion was, was one of the ones that was probably the hardest one, uh, where, you know, I don't know if you, if anyone's ever dealt with a concussion or been around people that have had that happen to them. It's, it's really unfortunate. Um, it's a terrible injury. It's a really tough one to diagnose and to know how bad it is and that sort of thing. But having to have a conversation with somebody who was really convinced that they didn't want, they didn't want to come out of the game, but they needed to come out of the game. And it wasn't, it maybe wasn't in the best interest of the team for them to not play, but it was in the best interest of that person. And so those kind of sort of just those things from coaching where, you know, I, you know, it's not as easy to say, do this, do that. It's more that you got to think about all these other factors that, that play into who the human is. And that was one of, you know, a real eye opener to leadership as to, you know, you got to put aside maybe some other goals and some other priorities in order to consider broad, bigger picture, broader aspects. What made you make that hard decision instead of going with what felt right at the time, keeping the team happy, having your star player, though compromised, still playing in the game? What made you have the long term vision where it's going to be better? to uh, to take them out and maybe take the L short term and the W long term. I mean, I think it that that was just um just comes down to knowledge and just comes down to, you know, that I was educated enough in the field, albeit I could have known a lot more. I was not I'm not an expert in concussions in any sense, but being able to understand that, you know, what the short term versus long term is is one thing and then also just coming back to like 
why do I why do I like sports so much? Yeah, sure, they they make you feel good, and you can uh, you know they, they get all sorts of they release all sorts of stuff in your body that makes you feel great. But it's more of a thing about life in the sense that it's just a, another sort of description or, or way that we can look at our lives and what we can do with them, and and sports just a sort of a micro in the macro picture. Yeah, I find that as well. Uh, the more I learn about any sport, the more I see it applies very broadly to the world around me. Um, I know it's dramatized a little bit, but watching Drive to Survive on Netflix, I was like, this is life. Like this is this is like yeah. a little world here. That was but, a great uh, one. I like that show yeah. too. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever watched F1 like live? I, I, I've never watched it live. I would love to. I, I was actually I, I went I was in Monaco, I don't know, about six or eight months ago. And I, I, you know, I'm walking around the, the track and I was just thinking, holy cow, how did they race this place? Yeah. It is just nuts. But yeah, um, yeah I, I would I would love to see it. I think F1 is, is again, just another cultural sort of aspect of it. And then the whole team behind this one driver or two drivers, whatever. Mm. Um, it's it's really impressive to see the, the sort of the culmination of all these efforts and all these little micro, micro adjustments that yeah. they do. Just to try to win. I see an interesting gap in, uh, like broadly speaking, in our vision, literal and and I guess figurative. When uh, I see someone play sports on the television or, um, you know, even even live, if I don't know enough about the sports, like the rules, um, the strategy, and especially if I've not tried it myself, it looks easy. It looks sometimes boring. And when I learn a little bit more about the details, I'm in awe of the levels of uh, human existence and how you can uh, dedicate yourself to something and just get inhumanly good at it to the point that it like it transcends like logic. Uh, like how how did you do that? And I was I was wondering if you had a similar experience, although you're much more practiced in sports. Well, no, I, I'm, you're making me sound better than I am. Uh, just because I practice doesn't mean I'm good. Uh, but I think that I think that you're really onto something there. The people who are best at their sports, they make or best at anything, they make it look easy. They come, they make it look natural. It makes it, it make it seem like they could roll out of bed and just boom, they got it. That's not the case. I don't think that's really the case for anyone. Even if you look at the most gifted athletes in the world um, or in their fields. It doesn't come easy, you know, and it goes back to that hard work beats talent when talent isn't working very hard. And, you know, th there's all sorts of examples out there. Um, hate to pile on, but, you know, tennis, Nick Kyrgios is a great example. He's got okay. a pile of God-given talent, but just doesn't have the desire to to focus in and, and make it work. There's there's people like that all over the place. Um, you know, another basketball player, you know, like the game piling on people but zion williamson the guy is 300 pounds he's six foot nine and he's got like a 46 inch vertical which is unheard of but imagine if he was 250 pounds he would be dominant and now he's he's launching into his pro career and he's having injury problems so then then there's problems where you, you think that there is this talent thing but there's also to make it look really graceful and make it look like a like a ballet out there that that takes a lot of hard work to get to that point and um and yeah, I I fully I fully agree with you there that the hard work is one thing, but the best make it look easy because they put in all that hard work. To connect with our appreciation uh, as a layperson uh, looking at a professional and maybe even uh, dabbling a bit in their sport, 
uh, there is a parallel, as you pointed out, with business and uh, being a leader and having a message or um, communicating to your team something that they might not understand at the time, like the reason why we need to do it this way. And I was curious to connect back to that difficult decision you made with the concussion. I had a similar experience telling someone they couldn't climb Mount Fuji. I had experienced altitude sickness myself, very similar to the person that I had to say no to, a young man who felt invincible and racing up a mountain uh, well above the, the threshold for altitude sickness. And uh, once you have it, you, you know, you, it doesn't get better. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I, I saw the symptoms because I had them myself years prior and uh, I had to say no, and it was the right decision. And he found out it was the right decision the next day. I don't want to make it melodramatic and say I saved his life, but I certainly saved him more pain. Um, mm -hmm. And he recognized that in the end, but he, he didn't recognize that at the time. And looking at a leader in business and in your experience, how do you communicate to someone without telling them everything? Uh, how do you how do you build that trust that they should listen to you? Uh, you know what you're talking about, and you have their best interests at heart. It's a really tough one. Going back to the relationships, I mean, I'm sure you would have had found some common ground with this gentleman that you're referring to. That maybe he was a hydrologist as well, or or whatever, and so you had figured out some sort of way to to bridge the gap there. I think that's really important. The other side of it is that there is an element of of confidence. You need to be confident in in what you're what you're trying to say, even though it may be an unfavorable position uh, at the time. But having some confidence in there to to be able to push and influence in the in the way that you think might work. You know, one one example that I can kind of think of is when you know you're trying to we were trying to do a, a system implementation, and you know that was met with a bunch of knows not going to work not going to be the right thing to do too expensive it's going to take too long it's going to be too much work and then it was it was okay okay we'll we'll put this on the back burner we'll we'll wait for this we'll we'll sort of pick and choose our spots we'll find when it when it's going to be the right time and then just being able to sort of still believe in yourself and believe that what you're doing is is the right thing and being able to time it with the right right elements. Who's to say this this gentleman can't go back and climb Mount Fuji next week? I mean, it could just be, you know, there's a time and needing that time and the opportunity at the same point, that intersection, it, it doesn't just happen naturally. Timing is really important. So I think that, that that would be part of it that I would that I would take to people and say that, yeah, this is this is a great idea. This is really good. But maybe you should just sort of give it give it give it some time to percolate here a little bit. Mm. Uh, another thing really with what I find when I talk to people earlier on in their careers, that I feel that that same drive. Like, oh, I want more. I want more. I want. I want to progress. I want to move up. I want to get get a different job. Get more responsibility. Do more. I I was the same way. And you know the the feedback that I got that I really appreciated was just give it some time. Be patient with it. You still maintain your confidence. You're doing the right things with this, but you know also understand that that this will take some time and and just be ready to play your hand when the time comes. When you said, uh, who's to say this young gentleman can't come back and climb Fuji next week. I wanted to say me, I'm never going to let him climb out Fuji. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like a kind of live, live to fight another day kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Make, making the right decisions, having a long-term vision, mark of a, of a good wise leader. Is there anything that you would like to say 
about sports and or business leadership that we've not had a chance to touch on? I mean, I go on and on, but I, I think that it kind of comes back to being, it's kind of cliche. And again, it kind of, it's one of these things that took me a little while to, to really appreciate, but the value of mentorship is, is huge. Um, being able to have, you know, in my experience with coaching, having coaches work with me, I really thought of them as mentors. But then, you know, in hindsight, you kind of take a step back and you think about, you know, road trips that you're on with them and all the stuff that you do away from the, the field of play. It All that stuff plays a big part into, into creating sort of the fabric and that sort of thing. And as I moved into, you know, my professional career, uh, there was a couple of coaches that I went back to and I leaned back on, you know, 10 years later saying, hey, let's go for lunch. Coach, I need I want to talk to you. <laughs> and so so that element of, of being like, you know, we talked about a good captain and then a coach has got a different role, but it is they're all sort of pushing in the same direction. And uh, and, you know, the coaches, I think the coach is more worried about the person. Then, then the captain is worried about the, the functions and how the puzzle pieces fit together. The coaches, coach thinks more in three dimensions versus a captain in, in maybe two. So I think that those are kind of some of the big takeaways that I got from it. And uh, if I ever, you know, whenever I get the chance to either ask somebody, hey, do you want to take on another one? Do you want to go meet for something? Then that that's, I think it's valuable. You got nothing to lose. And if, if I ever get asked from anyone, I... I'll try to find a way to make it work. There's no sense in saying no. You know, I one of the guys I I, um, I play squash with, he says, you know, every week you should play three matches, one against somebody better than you, one against somebody at your level, and one against somebody worse than you. And just kind of build that ecosystem and build that that sort of collective, holistic, healthy element of it. And that, that goes along with it. I found that it's helpful to have more than one mentor. I was curious what your thoughts were on that. Oh, yeah, for sure. And don't pick the same person. You don't don't pick somebody who's just, you know, if you want to be in banking, don't try to get, you know, like three different banking executives to be your mentors. You know, the the idea of, of muscle confusion, uh, but with your with your brain, with your career, with your with everything that you don't want to get sort of stuck on a track and doing the same thing over and over. You don't know what's out there and you got to try new things. And what that means is sometimes you got to give up other things. And that's okay. You can move on and that's, uh, you know, just commit yourself to, to a comfortable level to what you're doing. And I think it's, it served me very well. What's an example of muscle confusion in your professional career? I, I can imagine in sports, you, you mentioned you play a few different sports. So probably naturally you're, you're introducing muscle confusion there, but in your professional career, could you give us, I could think of a couple, but could you give us an example? More recently, my muscles have been really confused uh, with, you know, dealing with more of a of a broad workforce where I work now at Progressive Automations. We've got uh, a team in Ukraine and a team in uh, building a team in Mexico. And we've got a team in, in the U.S. And having all these teams sort of under the operations umbrella has been very challenging. And in the best way possible, I have gained so much respect and admiration for what these Ukrainian co-workers of mine are doing. I'm so impressed with their drive and their ability to come to work every day and, you know, just being able to contribute. And yeah, it's, it is a lot, it's a lot different when you're, you're working with somebody in a war zone. You kind of, even this morning, I was sending them messages saying that, you know, Hey, how you guys doing? How's, how are things going? And, you know, it's, it really, 
it's it's been more confusing on my heart than my muscles because I, I really feel for them and and the stuff that they're going through and they're you know people like people like me my age that you know may get pulled off the street one day and said hey you're going to fight and so it's it's been really kind of that human aspect of of really trying to work that and and stay away from my analytical muscles those ones those ones might be you know i don't want to sound too arrogant but overdeveloped in the perspective of things <laughs> i still i still have to take my uh socks off to count over 10. it's uh it's good it's good to be to be confused and another thing you know i used to work in a franchising space as well and that was super interesting because we were dealing with hundreds of franchisees all over the place doing different things they all have different priorities they all have different come from different backgrounds they all have different areas and perspectives and being able to to sort of really understand uh it's like it's like working a cocktail party but really understanding who everyone there is and trying to find ways that that can really um you know resonate with them yeah you have a, a really interesting background actually like looking looking at your profile going from you know hydraulic uh, hydrologists to franchises to progressive automations which uh does not have anything to do with cars yet uh what well, you mentioned the the seats going back and forth i suppose yeah but that's not even us the oems will make their own yeah no i, I think progressive is great and we're coming up with a whole bunch of you know range of products and trying to find different ways to to use the this technology in, in different people's lives and uh um, yeah it's been really kind of fun that one. Can you can you look ahead three five years in the future? Is there something you want to try to do that you haven't done yet? Uh, do, do you have a sense on on what you might like to to do career wise? That's a tough one. I don't I don't I don't know. I really enjoy my job and I really enjoy what I'm doing now. It's really I really like going to work every day. So I don't I don't really want to mess with that too much. It's it's taken me a while to get to that point. I've been in places where it hasn't been so. Um, utopian almost it's it's been it's been really great that way but what do i want to what, what can i see myself doing i i see myself if anything growing down going back down resetting again going into a, a small business environment that is not as established and trying to figure all that out i heard a really interesting discussion about a, a two by two graph of confidence and competence so those are on the x and y axis so when you start a new job or you start a new task, or you start a new anything, you come in in the top left corner, which is high confidence, low competence. And then all of a sudden, you start that job, you start that task, and very quickly, you realize your confidence gets eroded. You don't know what you're doing. And then as time goes, you work your way along that x-axis, and you, your competence grows. And then, then your confidence grows, and you make this U-shape. And once you go from that top left and you navigate through all four squares, you end up in the top right, then that's the time to take on a new challenge. And so that kind of, that sort of thing is really resonated with me. With my career, I, I'm, I'm not there yet. I still, I still feel like uh, there's a lot more for me to learn with, with where I'm at right now, but I, I still would continue to apply that on different levels. There's different parts of the business that I'm interested in in getting involved in. There's there's a lot of different things that we can we can do from you know where we make our products to how we make them to different app markets that we can access that that are all sort of would set me right back to high confidence, low competent. It sounds a little bit like uh, the startup kind of uh, graph as well. Like you, you start yeah. out, oh, this is the great the greatest idea ever, and then it's like, what am I doing? How did I get myself into yeah. this mess? And then little by little, you work your way up, and, and then it's on to the next challenge. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
I, I, <laughs> busy people are happy people. My grade one teacher said that, and I still remember it, and I really believe yeah. it. So, um, you know, I don't want to get stale. I don't want to get stagnant, yeah. um, and I don't. I want to keep busy. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what's next, but I, I don't see myself necessarily going into a big organization and going back down down that path. I like the small business and the really the ability to work closely with people that that are you're all working together and, and making a difference. Yeah, I can see that. Thank you for for taking the time to, to talk to me and our audience today. Is there anything that you'd like to leave us with or uh, direct people towards? Yeah, I'll give you a shameless plug. Uh, we got progressivedesk.com.ca, progressiveautomations.com.ca, and new to the market, progressivebed.com.ca. You can go check out our products there and see the sort of stuff that we're working on. But yeah, we're uh, we're excited. It's a, it's a fun business to be in. And yeah, thanks again for having me. I think this was great. And I wish you all the best with what you're doing. I'm very impressed with, uh, with what you're doing with Horizons. And I think it's wonderful. Right on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Horizon Podcast. New episodes go out on Mondays. Next week's guest is Yvette Owo, who is a precocious entrepreneur at the tender age of 10, a senior manager of business strategy for Accenture, and is now managing partner of YOLO Companies, a holding company looking to acquire accounting, bookkeeping, and finance businesses. Yvette will talk about strategy and entrepreneurship. Expect many nuggets of wisdom punctuated by mic drops. Until then, eyes on the horizon.